Hello fellow teachers and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox and thank you for letting me be a part of your scripture study or your lesson prep this week. I'm here to help you study and teach the scriptures with more relevancy, impact, and power. Now this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. And this week, the manual has us covering Mosiah chapters 18 through 24. But if you remember how I explained it last time, we're going to be exclusively covering the messages of both Abinadi and then Alma at the Waters of Mormon this week. So we'll actually spend most of our time in Mosiah chapters 12 through 18. Hopefully that's okay. I just felt that that was a really good way to break it up. Before we get started, though, as a reminder, if you'd like printable lesson plans based on the videos or the PowerPoint slides or handouts that I use to make them, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to my channel, my blog, and my shop. But let's go ahead and dig deep. If I were standing before you and teaching this lesson, the very first thing I would do is take off my shoes and socks in front of you and show you my feet. I've done this many times with classes of youth, and they always find it amusing and, of course, a little odd. But it's a really good attention getter. And I'll ask them if they know how to get beautiful feet. And do you know the best way to make your feet more beautiful? It's not by painting your toenails or filing down calluses or even keeping them washed and moisturized. No, there's a much better way to get beautiful feet. And Abinadi is going to teach us how. Before we get too deep into Abinadi's message, though, I wanted to tell you how difficult it was to decide what truths and ideas to emphasize and cover from these chapters. Now, that's typical. There's always more in the scriptures to teach than we have time as teachers to share. But these chapters seemed even more particularly challenging than usual. Abinadi has a lot to say on a lot of different topics. He gives a very diverse discourse. For example, here's a quick list of just some of the principles I contemplated focusing on in this lesson. And if you're teaching, perhaps you're going to want to include some of these things, and, and I might touch on a few of these briefly in our lesson. You could do a lesson on the Ten Commandments and their continued relevance in our day. You could talk about how God protects his servants from their enemies until their work is completed, as he protects Abinadi here. There's a whole section here on how the law of Moses was a type or a shadow of Christ. There's some often misunderstood verses on how Christ is both the Father and the Son. And you could dive really deep into the meaning of that section and, and try to clarify it. You could do a lesson on the first resurrection, uh, how to become an enemy to God and why that's not a good idea. The covenant of baptism, the qualities that define the true church. All of these approaches, I'm confident, would yield lots of fruit. But what I like to try to do for you, especially for you teachers, is to try and find a common thread to pull Abinadi and Alma's messages together into a unified message that could be taught in one or two lessons, and to really focus on the things that will be the most practical and relevant for your students to apply. So with that said, Let's pick up the story in Mosiah 12, where Abinadi has been arrested and brought before the king and priests for questioning. Verse 19 tells us that they began to question him, that they might cross him, that thereby they might have wherewith to accuse him. And here I believe we have an excellent example of how people, even today, try to discredit the words of the prophets. If I'm not doing what I should, if I don't particularly like the message the prophets are giving me, their counsels interfere with my social life, or my political persuasions, or my worldly desires, I might try to find a way to question, to cross, or to accuse the prophets. And if I'm successful, then I can feel justified in not listening to them. That's what I feel is going on here. As we look at this section, I want you to ask yourselves if you have ever found yourself employing these techniques. So the first thing I see them doing is in verses 20 through 24. They're going to ask him about the meaning of a certain passage in Isaiah. I'd like to invite you to read those verses and ask yourself, why are they quoting this particular prophecy in this context of questioning Abinadi? 
And I'll go ahead and give you my assessment that this is not a sincere question. It's not like they're all of a sudden having a change of heart, and they're like, Hey, Abinadi, we've always really wondered about these Isaiah verses. You seem to understand the scriptures well. What do you think this means? Uh, I highly doubt that's what's happening here. I think their intent is much more confrontational. Why do you think they quote this to Abinadi? And it came to pass that one of them said unto him, What meaneth the words which are written, and which have been taught by our fathers, saying, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So what do you think? Why quote that to Abinadi? This is an accusatory question, a confrontational question. These verses speak about how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good tidings of good, that tell people to rejoice. Why might they say that? Because they're trying to discredit his message. They're saying, Abinadi, your message of condemnation and punishment just doesn't seem to match up with what the scriptures are saying here. You're supposed to be giving us good news and peace and salvation and joy and comfort not all this reproof and repentance. Therefore, we can dismiss your words. So the first tactic they're using is to try and discredit the message. To say your message isn't a true one because it's not a good one. And do people still use that tactic today? You bet they do. The Church of Jesus Christ can't be true because of this particular passage in the Bible that clearly contradicts your doctrine. So we don't have to listen to you. Um, your message isn't progressive enough. It's too old-fashioned. Therefore, we don't have to listen to you. Your message isn't popular. Therefore, we don't have to listen to you. Your message is difficult to accept. Therefore, we don't have to listen to you. There's lots of ways people without and even within the church may try to discredit a prophet's message. But this is what I love about Abinadi. His response is so good and so bold and in their face. It's almost as if he's saying, Oh, really? You, you want to try and use the scriptures against me? You want to go there? You want to understand that verse? I'll tell you the meaning of that verse. And while I'm at it, I'll fulfill that prophecy right here and now, and I'll even use it to condemn you. You like Isaiah? I'll give you some Isaiah. And then, oh, he just lets them have it. It's, it's really kind of fun to watch. The first words out of his mouth. Are you priests and pretend to teach this people and to understand the spirit of prophesying and yet desire to know of me what these things mean? So it's like, you've got to be kidding me. Really? You're supposed to be the religious leaders of this people and you're going to try to use those verses to condemn my words? Verse 26. I say unto you, woe be unto you for perverting the ways of the Lord. For if ye understand these things, ye have not taught them. Therefore ye have perverted the ways of the Lord. Ye have not applied your hearts to understanding. Therefore ye have not been wise. Therefore what teach ye this people? And that's the real problem, isn't it? They haven't applied their hearts to understanding. They're cherry-picking verses that seem to support their words and condemn Abinadi's. They're resting the scriptures like Alma says in Alma 13.20. And that's a caution to us as well. As we study the scriptures or listen to the living prophets, we should be careful not to just look for what we want to hear and then disregard the rest. We've got to apply our hearts to understanding. Yes, there are things that our minds or our bodies or our natural man might want to understand. But in our hearts, we know that they're wrong. We've got to be sure to seek truth with an understanding heart. Don't seek to discredit their message or make them an offender for a word. Well, Abinadi ends that verse with, What teach ye this people? You know, if you don't understand that verse, what in the world are you teaching them? 
Their answer? The law of Moses. And Abinadi is like, are you sure about that? The law of Moses? And so he says in verse 29, if you teach the law of Moses, why do you not keep it? Why do you set your hearts upon riches? Why do you commit whoredoms and spend your strength with harlots? Yea, and cause this people to commit sin. And then in verse 31, And what know ye concerning the law of Moses? So I love that. You really think you're teaching them the law of Moses? I'm pretty sure there's a little part of that law called the Ten Commandments. And as far as I can see, you're breaking every single one. So let me do you a little favor. I'm going to teach you the Ten Commandments. And so he starts in on them in verse 34. And he only gets through two before they command him to be killed. And you can understand why, right? These are the priests of the people, the religious leaders. And here Abinadi has the audacity to teach them the Ten Commandments, the most basic fundamental part of the Law of Moses. And now we're going to see the second tactic people use to discredit the prophets. The priests haven't succeeded in discrediting the message. Abinadi has soundly defeated them on that front and called them out for their disobedience to the very law that they profess to teach. So what tactic are they going to use this time? Chapter 13, verse 1. And now when the king had heard these words, he said unto his priests, Away with this fellow and slay him. For what have we to do with him? For he is mad. They're so outraged that they call him crazy. Of course, that, that's the only possible explanation. I don't like what he's saying about me, so he must be crazy. Yeah, that's it. He's crazy. So what's tactic number two? If I can't discredit the message, then maybe I can discredit the messenger. There's something about him, his character, his manner, his background that I can point to that allows me to dismiss him. And do people still use that tactic today against our modern church leaders? Uh, they're too old. Therefore, I don't have to listen to them. They're too politically conservative. Therefore, I don't have to listen to them. They're unlearned. They're self-interested. They have this or that personality flaw. This particular thing that happened in their past or, or one of a billion other reasons. The conclusion is all the same. I don't have to listen to him. Hopefully, we'll never find ourselves using these tactics to question or dismiss a prophet or his message. Well, they demand that he be killed, but Abinadi remains fearless. And though he stands there as a prisoner, at the mercy of the most powerful people in his society, he gives an order with an authority far greater than the king's, and commands, Touch me not. For God shall smite you if you lay your hands upon me, for I have not delivered the message which the Lord sent me to deliver. Neither have I told you that which he requested that I should tell. I really love that. I haven't answered your question yet. You asked me a question, and you're going to get an answer. So back off. Therefore, God will not suffer that I shall be destroyed at this time. And you know, perhaps a quick truth here. Sometimes we may wonder why God saves some prophets from death and not others. Why does Abinadi eventually burn? But God saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. Why is Samuel the Lamanite spared the rocks and arrows, but Paul is beheaded? Why do Joseph Smith and Hiram die in Carthage, but John Taylor and Willard Richards are spared? It's a good question, right? And I believe the answer lies in that verse. God will not suffer that I shall be destroyed at this time. For I have not delivered the message which the Lord sent me to deliver. And then in verse 9, But I finish my message, and then it matters not whither I go, if it so be that I am saved. So God does spare Abinadi for a time, as he does other prophets. But why? so they can finish their message, so they can accomplish his work. God honors agency, even if it means the pain and death of his servants. But man cannot frustrate the works of God. So sometimes he steps in and suspends agency for a time. But after his servants have completed their work, 
their lives are at the mercy of their enemies. So with the temporary protection of God from their agency, Abinadi continues. He finishes teaching them the Ten Commandments in verses 12 through 24, all ten of them. And then he explains why the law of Moses was given and what it was really all about in verses 25 through 33. That it was uh, just a shadow or a type, a symbol of something far greater to come. But now you'll sense a shift in Abinadi's message. He's going to transition into answering their question about those verses in Isaiah. He's going to actually give them the good tidings of good that they were asking about earlier. Instead of just the shadow, he's going to give them the being that casts the shadow. Instead of just giving them the symbol, he's going to teach them the reality of the symbolized. So let's pick it back up in verse 34. And this is an important verse because this is the teaching that they're actually going to condemn him for. Have they, the prophets, not said that God himself should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of man and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth? So, priests, you've missed the whole point of the law of Moses. It was established to point to and testify of Jesus Christ, this God that will come down among the children of men. And then he's going to quote some of his own Isaiah. Uh, he'll respond to their Isaiah question with Isaiah chapter 53. And he's going to quote it in its entirety. And personally, I love this chapter. It's perhaps one of the most beautiful and poetic descriptions of Christ's atonement that we find anywhere in the Bible. And it was written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. They wanted some Isaiah, so Abinadi is going to give them some Isaiah. And I'd like to walk you through this chapter verse by verse, if you don't mind. Because Isaiah is sometimes a little hard to understand. I want to give you some practice in interpreting him. I've put together 12 different verse summaries and mixed up their order. I want you to study Mosiah 14 and match the verse with the statement that best summarizes its meaning. Then we'll go ahead and we'll go through it together. I've created this uh, as a handout, and I'll make that available for download. But let's begin in verse 1. Yea, even doth not Isaiah say, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? When you reveal your arm, what does that suggest? If you saw me roll up my sleeves and reveal my arm, what am I communicating to you? I'm about to go to work. So God is going to go to work now. And what's God's work? To bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So the answer is F. The Lord will accomplish his work for all those who believe. But how does he do that? He's going to accomplish his work by sending somebody. Verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So how will God accomplish his work? By sending his son. And his son will grow up as a tender plant. Christ won't come as a conquering warrior, but like a seed, pushing its leaves through the soil. Jesus was born in a manger to a poor Judean couple as a helpless child. He grew up rather normally, became a carpenter, and, and spent most of his ministry teaching the poor and the downtrodden. And there's no beauty that we should desire him. That doesn't mean he was ugly, but that people aren't going to follow him because of his looks or his charisma. It won't be because of his outward appearance. He'll be very average-looking. If we were to live at that time, he probably wouldn't stand out in a crowd. Like our prophets today, they're very normal-looking men. I can see an investigator to the church saying, This older man in a suit and tie is a prophet? I pictured a, uh, a Charlton Heston type in a robe with a flowing white beard clutching a staff. But you know, this is how God usually works, through ordinary people who do extraordinary things. So the answer is C. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. 
He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The answer is I. Here we find that many are going to reject Jesus Christ. Not everybody's going to listen to him. He'll not be esteemed. And then those phrases that he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, I've struggled with those a little bit. Was Jesus a mournful, sad, solemn person? I don't think so. If wickedness never was happiness, but righteousness is, then Jesus, as the most righteous person to ever live, must have also been the most happy. I imagine him laughing, smiling, playing with children, and generally being a very pleasant person to be around. So why does Isaiah describe him as a man of sorrows and grief? I think the next verse has the answer. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. The answer is E. So it's our griefs that he's bearing and our sorrows that he carries. That's why he's a man of grief and sorrows. And here we get the beginning of our atonement phrases. There's lots in this chapter. Multiple ways that he expresses the idea that Jesus will take upon himself our sins and sorrows. Verse 5 is full of them. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So our answer is A. And then allow me to go ahead and give you the rest of them from this chapter. In verse 6, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. Verse 8, for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. And in verse 12, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That is the miracle of the atonement, that he takes upon himself my sins and sufferings to satisfy the demands of justice. The opposites are humbling. His grief grants our relief. His sorrow brings us joy. His wounds heal ours. His bruises bring us wholeness. His chastisement brings us peace. His stripes, or whippings, bring us freedom from punishment. His back bears the load of our iniquities so that we may walk uprightly. His being stricken makes us complete. His intercession makes saints out of transgressors. So Christ comes in and he bears those things for me. Uh, I remember a time recently where a large expense appeared for our family that we really couldn't afford to pay completely on our own. How grateful I was when my father stepped forward and said, Don't worry, I'll help. I'll cover that cost. And then all the stress and anxiety of the situation dissipated in a moment. It was a huge relief. And how grateful I was for a father who was willing to sacrifice for my benefit, for my well-being. Well, that's like Christ. He steps in as a mediator, and that should increase our love and devotion to him. And then we have verse 6. Unfortunately, how do many react to that blessing? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. So what do we do? We turn our own way. We say, I want to do my own thing. I can do whatever I want. You're not the boss of me. It's a free country. The compelling thing, though, is that he compares that attitude with sheep. Do sheep do their own thing? Maybe they think they are, but they're all doing their own thing the same way. What's the creed of the world? I want to be different, just like everybody else. I think it's fascinating that most people who want to rebel against societal norms usually do it in the same way. The same look, the same fashions, the same lifestyle. The answer here is H. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And whether this is meant to be encouraging or not, he also compares himself to a sheep in these verses. And how is Jesus Christ like a sheep? He's sometimes referred to as the Lamb of God. He was God's sacrifice for the world. 
but he also very humbly accepted that sacrifice. He didn't resist it. He completely submitted to his father's will. It makes me think of that moment with uh, Pontius Pilate, where the crowds are shouting for his crucifixion. With all the power in the world to save himself, to call down legions of angels to protect him, still he stands meekly and takes it. He allows them to crucify him, even though at any moment he had the power to stop it. The answer is J. Verse 8. Now, in verse 8, a very significant question is asked. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. What's he asking here? He's asking who shall declare his generation? Who are going to be Christ's children? Who will carry on his name, his heritage? Because he was cut off out of the land of the living so young, before he could have children. In biblical times, this was a really big deal. Not to have a male heir to carry on your family name was considered tragic. Even today, we can kind of understand this. When I was born, my grandpa was very relieved. He had two daughters and one son, my dad. And then my dad's first two children were girls. So grandpa was somewhat worried that his family name might not be passed on to the next generation. But when I was born, he was grateful to have an heir to continue the Wilcox family name through his line. But this is even a bigger concern in biblical days. So I ask you, is Christ going to have a posterity, a heritage, a seed? That's Isaiah's question or concern. We'll continue with that thought in a minute. But the answer to this verse is G. Verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no evil, neither was any deceit in his mouth. So we know that Christ was crucified between two thieves and was buried in a rich man's tomb. The answer then, D. Then verse 10 is going to answer our question of whether Christ will have seed. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So Jesus will have children. He will have posterity. And he will see them when his soul is made an offering for sin. When did he make his soul an offering for sin? In his atonement. After he has completed his atonement, then he will see his seed, his heirs. The answer is K. And how will he feel about that sacrifice when it's over? Verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The answer is L. Fascinating. What's he comparing his atonement to? What's the metaphor? Travail, or the labor of childbirth. Now, I've never given birth before, but I've been present for the births of each of my four children. I can attest that there's a lot of pain and discomfort and agony associated with giving birth. Jesus felt that this was the closest thing that he could compare the pains of his atonement to. You mothers out there have a unique and special understanding of this metaphor that men will never truly comprehend. And mothers, do you remember how you felt at the end of all that pain? Satisfied. When that precious little infant is placed in a mother's arms, how do they most often react? All the pain and discomfort is forgotten, and they're satisfied with the sacrifice. All that sacrifice and hardship was worth the blessing of holding that innocent, precious soul. I mean, how many mothers can you imagine out there looking down at their newborn child and saying, well, that wasn't worth it? No, they don't do that. They, they coo and cuddle and gaze at their child with immeasurable love. Christ felt the same way at the end of his atonement. And when he accomplished that, he saw his children also. His children were placed into his arms, so to speak. 
Who are these children? Abinadi is going to help us understand that in the next chapter. But let's finish Isaiah's prophecy with verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So he will be greatly glorified because of his sacrifice. He'll divide his spoils with the strong. What is his victory? His victory over death and sin. What are the spoils of that victory? Forgiveness and the resurrection. What will he do with them? Share them. Divide them among the strong or the righteous. So our final answer is is B. And wow, don't you just love Isaiah? He had such a gift for writing beautifully about Christ. No wonder Jesus commanded us to search his words diligently. So now Abinadi is going to give his commentary on these Isaiah verses in chapter 15. In verse 1, he reiterates the fact that God himself, or Christ, a member of the Godhead, would eventually condescend and come down among the children of men. And then we have these somewhat difficult verses where it seems like Abinadi is teaching the doctrine of Trinitarianism, which is the belief that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are all one entity. But he's not. And I won't spend a lot of time on this. We, we could go into great depth. But basically, he's saying that Christ had two parts to himself that made the atonement possible. It was something that only he was uniquely qualified to perform because of his dual nature as both God and man deity, and mortal. And that's about all I want to do with that. If that confused you, don't worry too much about it. We've got modern prophets to help us understand the true nature of the Godhead, and they've explained it very clearly to us. But remember that Abinadi's major goal here is to tell us the good news, the good tidings of good. He shared them in Isaiah's words, and now he's going to do it with his own. And for the remainder of the lesson, we're going to answer these three important questions about the good tidings. What are the good tidings? Who has them? And how are they shared? So first, what are the good tidings? Here's Abinadi's version of Isaiah's prophecy. Verses 8 through 9. And thus God breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men, having ascended into heaven, having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, taken upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them, and satisfied the demands of justice. The good news is that Christ came down to overcome death and sin. But that's not all. He came to do those things, but what did he leave with? He ascended into heaven, having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men. That's good news. We often focus so much on what he came to do that sometimes we forget the importance of what he gained by doing it. Mercy and compassion. A deep understanding and empathy for the sufferings and sorrows of mankind, and thank heaven for that. Abinadi continues, standing betwixt them and justice. That's a striking image. Where does Christ stand? Betwixt us and justice. So there we are, helpless and vulnerable to justice, subject to both sin and death. They're making their way over to finish us off. When who appears? Christ. He steps forward and positions himself between us and them. He looks death and justice in the eye and says, Your fight is with me, not them. I will take their griefs, their sorrows, their stripes, their iniquities, their wounds, their death, and free them from your powers. Remember, Christ is the great monster slayer of Second Nephi chapter 9. The monster attacks, and Christ suffers incredibly at the power of his claws. But in the end, Christ is victorious, and the monster falls dead at the feet of love, mercy, and everlasting life. 
those are the good tidings. But the next question, who has them? Who bears these good tidings? In a word, his children, his seed, his generation. You remember the question that Isaiah asked? Who shall declare his generation? Who shall be his seed? Who's going to pass on the stories of his victory to future generations to preserve the heritage and the name of the family of Christ? The answer is verses 11 and 12. Behold, I say unto you that whosoever has heard the words of the prophets, yea, all the holy prophets who have prophesied concerning the coming of the Lord, I say unto you that all those who have hearkened unto their words and believed that the Lord would redeem his people and have looked forward to that day for a remission of their sins, I say unto you that these are his seed, or they are the heirs of the kingdom of God. For these are they whose sins he has borne. These are they for whom he has died to redeem them from their transgressions. And now are they not his seed? Who are Christ's children? All those who hear, hearken, believe, and look forward. That's how we become the children of Christ. And it makes sense, doesn't it? We always talk about baptism as as being a rebirth, right? We're being reborn. And we picture ourselves as newborn children, starting a new life. But do we focus so much on that aspect of the metaphor that we forget the other side of that image? There's no rebirth without a parent. There's no child that comes into this world without travail or labor. And that labor is painful, difficult, and often an agonizing experience. Christ performed that labor in Gethsemane and on Calvary. But as we already discussed, when he completed that labor, his children were laid in his arms, and he was satisfied. You were worth it. You were worth the atonement, the greatest suffering that any being has ever experienced. And as he holds his children in his arms with great love, all that pain and anguish is forgotten and swallowed up in his love for us, making it possible for us to return to our Father in heaven regardless of justice and death and sin. We are his seed. We will declare his generation. In verse 13, he includes the prophets as his seed. And then what I feel is the climax of his speech. It's as if at this point, Abinadi looks into the eyes of Noah and the wicked priests, and says, Now, now I'm ready to answer your question. Now that you have the proper background, let me explain those verses you asked me about four chapters back about beautiful feet. Now, Abinadi lived in a time before cell phones and CNN and FedEx. And in ancient times, when important news needed to be delivered, and delivered fast, messengers, or Runners were tasked with conveying that news as quickly as they could. And it was considered a great honor to bear a critical or celebratory message, like a great victory in battle. There's the famous story from Greek history, where the Greeks were terribly outnumbered in a battle with the Persians on the plains of Marathon. And they win. So a young runner by the name of Phidippides is given the privilege of bearing the news of that great victory back to Athens, roughly 26 miles away. And he runs with such fervor and speed and exertion that after he runs up the steps of the Acropolis to the king and shouts out his message, Rejoice! We conquer! He dies right there of exhaustion. Both Isaiah and Abinadi are going to draw on that imagery of messengers here, starting in verse 14. And these are they who have published peace, who have brought good tidings of good, who have published salvation, and said unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And oh, how beautiful upon the mountains were their feet! And again, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that are still publishing peace. 
And again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who shall hereafter publish peace, yea, from this time henceforth and forever. So, wicked priests, these are the good tidings of good that you were asking about. I've just declared them to you. Therefore, my words do match that prophecy. I've fulfilled them this day in your ears. Why are their feet beautiful? Because they carry the most important message that can be borne. Rejoice, Christ conquers. So for you and I, if you want to beautify your feet, forget the toenail polish and the lotion. Share the good news of Christ's gospel to all that you can, far and wide. And oh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who share it. I would have loved to have seen Abinadi's feet. They certainly must have been beautiful as are the feet of all those who have shared, who do share, and will share that message. From Adam to Peter to Joseph Smith to Russell M. Nelson, every prophet, every missionary, every convert, every faithful child, every disciple of Jesus Christ the world over have those beautiful feet. But Abinadi has one more pair of beautiful feet to talk about in verses 18 through 19. And behold, I say unto you, this is not all. For, oh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that is the founder of peace, yea, even the Lord who has redeemed his people, yea, him who has granted salvation unto his people. For were it not for the redemption which he hath made for his people, which was prepared from the foundation of the world, I say unto you, were it not for this, all mankind must have perished. So here we have the most beautiful pair of feet ever to walk the earth. And those are the feet of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The feet that walked the dusty roads of Palestine, healing and teaching. The feet that stood atop the waves of the Sea of Galilee. And the feet that bear the scars of sacrifice and the lesions of love as Elder Holland so eloquently puts it. One day, I hope to kneel at those feet. And, oh, it will be wonderful, wonderful to me. And if you would, I'd like to invite you to watch a church-produced video of the hymn, I Stand All Amazed, by clicking on the link above and then coming back afterwards. I feel it's a good way to conclude this section of the lesson. And as you watch, listen carefully to the words. I feel that this hymn really captures the rejoicing spirit of Jesus Christ's victory uh, with its chorus of, Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. The atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ is wonderful to me. In a world with so much bad news and so much pessimism and so much sadness, it's nice to know that there is good news. We need that good news, the news of the atonement, forgiveness, grace, and a future millennial reign. I hope that you too stand all amazed. Well, there is more to Abinadi's sermon to Noah and the wicked priests, but for time's sake, I'm going to let you finish the remainder of that message in 15 and 16 on your own. In summary, they're mainly words of warning to Noah and his priests an explanation that this good news applies to the righteous, that the wicked, who refuse to repent, will be cast out, turn themselves into enemies to God, and become subject to the devil. And does this message work? Do Noah and his priests repent and change? No, except one. A priest by the name of Alma stands up for Abinadi, but he's ordered out of the judgment hall, and Noah sends servants to kill him. But he gets away. Abinadi is thrown back into jail, and three days later, and I have to say, it took them three days to come up with this, uh, he's brought back for his sentencing. His crime? For thou hast said that God himself should come down among the children of men. And now for this cause thou shalt be put to death, unless... And uh, do they demand that he take back what he said about God? No. Unless thou wilt recall all the words which thou hast spoken evil concerning me and my people. So we know what it's really all about. They're not at all concerned about God's good name or his doctrine. 
They're just mad that Abinadi had the boldness to confront their wickedness. They have dismissed both message and messenger. Abinadi refuses to recall his words, and both he and his beautiful feet are burned at the stake. But there was one more question on our list that hasn't been answered yet. How are those good tidings shared? How do we publish peace as his messengers? Instead of Abinadi giving us that one, we're going to let Alma answer that question. Abinadi's one convert. After escaping Noah's court, Alma goes secretly among the people, teaching Abinadi's words. He leads a small group of believers out to a place called the Waters of Mormon, and there he teaches them and us how to share the good tidings. And by doing the things that he teaches, we find in verse 22 that thus they became the children of God. Alma must have been touched by Abinadi's teachings of becoming the seed of Christ. Therefore, he goes out and helps people to become those children. How are they going to do it? How do they become the children of Christ? The key phrase, I feel, is found in verse 9. To stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in, even until death. We need to share by standing as witnesses. But I feel that this is so much more than just vocally. I think we often focus on the missionary aspect of standing as witnesses. And that certainly applies here. We do stand as witnesses by serving missions, bearing our testimonies, and teaching the gospel. But there's more to it. And if you search this chapter, you'll find what it means to stand as a witness of God. I know a lot of you like the handouts and activities that I put together, especially if you teach young people. This could be a good place to have your students find what it means to stand as a witness. You could do that with this crossword puzzle. If you're teaching adults, you could simply walk them through these verses, pulling out the phrases. But here they are. They are willing to mourn with those that mourn, in verse 9. And thus they should impart of their substance, of their own free will, in verse 28. Having their hearts knit together in unity and love one towards another, from verse 21. And now the down clues. Imparting to one another, both temporally and spiritually, from verse 29. Comfort those that stand in need of comfort, verse 9. There should be no contention among them, from verse 21. Serve him and keep his commandments from verse 10, and then bear one another's burdens that they may be light, from verse 8. What I really love about that list is that it is full of things that we do for each other. Standing as witnesses of Christ isn't so much about talking about the gospel or even believing in something, though both of those matter. It's about being a certain kind of person. How will people know that we are disciples of Christ? By the way that we treat each other. We comfort one another. We mourn with each other. We bear one another's burdens. We impart of our substance. Our hearts are knit together in unity and love. That is perhaps the greatest testimony we will ever bear to the world. Our character, our community, the way we act towards one another. That's what will attract people most to the gospel. Remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Our love is what defines us as disciples of Christ. We can be the type of people that cause others to say, Wow, look at those Christians. Look at those members of the Church of Jesus Christ. I may not understand all their doctrines or beliefs, but they are such good, loving people. Look at how they treat each other. Look at how they serve and help one another. Look at how they live their religion. Surely God must be here. And maybe they'll become so curious or desirous of those same blessings that one day they too will wish to hear the message as well. And I have met many converts who say just that. 
that it was the character of the members of the church that attracted them to learn more. Now, there are many other things in chapter 18 that distinguish those that follow Christ and that denote the true church of Christ, but I'll let you discover those things on your own. But if I may, I would like to give you a few questions to ponder to help you liken the scriptures. Are you a child of Christ? Do you hear, hearken, believe, and look forward to the day of the remission of your sins? How beautiful are your feet? What can you do to more actively share the good tidings of good? How does your understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ make you feel? What is your testimony of the atonement? And what will you do to truly stand as a witness of God at all times, in all things, and in all places by showing love for your fellow man? Well, I hope that Abinadi and Alma's teachings have impacted you as deeply as they've impacted me. I testify that Christ's atonement is real and that to him you were worth all the travail and labor that he endured. I hope that we will hearken to the words of the prophets instead of seeking to dismiss them. I hope that all of us can sincerely become and act as the children of Christ, that we'll run as messengers with joy and enthusiasm, declaring the good tidings of good through our words, but also through our love. Let's keep our feet beautiful by truly standing up on them as witnesses of God at all times, in all things, and in all places. That is all I have for you this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, share it with somebody you feel like it helped. Thank you for watching, and as always, get out there and teach with